atmosphere there and get quite excited and you do all these internships and you get to meet all these incredible people. And so I was really lucky to get a political appointment at the White House, which is an honor of a lifetime to be able to serve. And it's something that you will do for a short period of time at the pleasure of the president. So when the president leaves, you leave. And I did that for about two and a half, three years. And so when the administration changed, I left, but it was during an economic downturn, which we're all starting to experience right now. And this was 2008, 2009. And I thought, oh no, what am I going to do? I have to look for a job right now during a recession. So I decided to go back to grad school. I loved London. I came back to London to do my MBA because I actually wanted to understand what was happening in the world and why politicians were scrambling around. How could they let this happen? So I came to do my MBA but got bored because I was so used to these crazy hours and working on weekends. And I ended up meeting someone in Tony Blair's office. At the time he was no longer prime minister, but he was in a personal capacity setting up his personal foundations. Ended up doing that in his faith foundation to deal with extremism in the world. Loved it, and did it for about three to four years, then moved back to Washington. Careers are kind of like this, they never go in a straight line. Um, got back to Washington and by accident, ended up at a little business called the Carlisle Group. And the Carlisle Group, which I hope some of you know, but it's one of the most prestigious, important private equity houses in the world. It's the only one based in Washington, D.C. And I sat there and was convinced to take a role in tax, which I thought, oh, like who wants to do tax? But the lady that was running the team was one of those impressive women that could sell you any dream or idea. And she said, politics and business is tax. So this is the best (laughs) way of coming into private equity. And I did that and my entire life changed. I got to learn this amazing industry. I got to grow up in one of the greatest private equity houses in the world. And since then, I've carried on that understanding of private equity through the lens of Carlisle. And I've been very blessed and lucky that they've been my client. So wherever I go, they're stuck with me until they say they don't want to work with me anymore. Great. Okay, so what is your specific role? Now, but you're at Marsh McClellan. Is that part of Carlisle Group? Yeah. So the way it works is you have Carlisle as a major private equity fund, and they have offices around the world. And when I moved back to London, Carlisle was really gracious and said, we will support you doing that. But they didn't have a tax team in London. So at that point, I made the move to KPMG to switch. So when you work on a deal, you have the private equity houses financing the deal and it's really exciting and they're investing in these companies. But you actually need a community of advisors to help get the deal over the line. So you need lawyers, you need accountants, KPMG, you need risk advisors, consultants that can actually help you identify some challenges you might have with people. And so my role at Marshall McLennan is to work with those private equity clients on their deals to offer these advisory services and help consult to help them get the deal over the line. Gotcha. All right, so what do you enjoy about private equity, especially since it wasn't your first career out of undergrad? (coughs) So what I love about it, similar to government. So government, unless you have a really specific focus, where your portfolio might be foreign policy in Afghanistan, let's say. That's really wonderful, and you could be a true subject expert in that, but what I love about private equity is that they cover every industry. So earlier today, I was talking about investing in infrastructure assets in the Middle East, so oil and gas. And then someone was talking about a watch company that one of my clients owns. I was like, well, that's more interesting. I'd rather talk about watches. And you get to learn so much about different industries, about how businesses actually work, how you can improve them, make them better. And being able to do that, not just here in London, 
but the scope of most private equity in this region is London will look at the rest of the region of Europe, and sometimes the Middle East. And so I've really enjoyed the diversity of the role, that every day is different, and if I get bored on one specific topic area, or I'm like, ah, oh, to, to point out Victoria here, if I don't want to do Italian deals today, tomorrow I could do a French deal. And it's really quite interesting, and you get to learn so much. And if you want to specialize, you can, but enjoys really the diversity of the industry. Okay, so before I get into a, a question about women in private equity, maybe could you just explain uh, what private equity is for maybe anyone who doesn't understand the specifics and how that there's different types of private equity, like in fashion, you have a, a company that will buy another fashion brand, something like that, so maybe just explain what it is. So it's so interesting, even at KPMG, people didn't know what private equity was. But you all know what private equity is because you are using private equity products. You don't even know it. So I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hands to make it slightly more interactive. But did anyone go to Pret today? We have one. Oh, poor Pret. <laughs> one, I went to Pret. I guess it was snowy. Um, has anyone heard of the company Montclair? Yes. Okay. All right. And we probably all have some of those products. Um, let me think of another company. Has anyone put Flora Butter? What's kind of fake butter? Has anyone ever used Bertoli or Flora Butter? Okay. Those are all private equity backed businesses. You probably didn't know that. But, but it's so exciting. So essentially you have these private equity houses and they will go and raise money. They raise money by investors, so sometimes family offices, sometimes governments, sometimes individuals, pension funds, etc. and they raise funds. And they pull all this capital, millions and millions and down billions of pounds and dollars, and they then have investment criteria. So it's essentially, you went around to all your friends and said, look, I'm really good at investing. Can you all give me 100 pounds? And you all give me 100 pounds, we put it in the bank. And I then go and I look at these companies, some of the ones I just mentioned, and I say, hmm, Pret's really great, but Pret would be amazing if they expanded into New York. Or Gymshark's doing amazing. Bennett Gymshark is so brilliant. He came up with the idea of Gymshark in his garage, but, he's not gonna be able to scale that business. So let me buy Gymshark, let me help Ben scale the business and do some improvements or, ooh, Ben made a mistake and he hired a factory in Leeds and Leeds labor cost is very expensive. So we're gonna fire the Leeds team and we're gonna open a factory in Wales. We're gonna do all those improvements, we're gonna help Ben, we bought his company for 200 pounds and now the company's worth 300, we're either gonna IPO it on one of the exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, and then I'm gonna get that money, because we sold it for 300 pounds, and I'm gonna share it with all of you that gave me your money. And then I'm also gonna pay myself, because I did all the work. <laughs> That's essentially how private equity works. So they do very different types of investing, but more often than not, they're helping grow businesses, realize their potential, internationalize them, and they're cutting out the fat. So they historically have a bad reputation because especially in the 1980s and 1990s, they would go in and gut companies, but generally you would actually say they're going in and making improvements. But sometimes when you make improvements to a business, you have to let people go, etc. But that's the whole concept, is that they're investing this capital, they're investing in businesses, growing them, selling them on for profit, doing it over and over again. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay, so this question is about women in private equity. It's a bit long, so I'm going to read it. Uh, so women are interested in this career field, but over a third of women in private, or a third of roles in private equity go to women, so not very many. And it's just like in law and in STEM fields, uh, as women climb the ladder, you see few and few of you put the microphone up a little closer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, so, and just like in law and STEM, 
as women climb the ladder, you see few and few of them at the top in private equity. Uh, it's being seen that uh, women are leaking out of private equity, and this affects a firm's ability to gain opportunities. It underserves investors, which causes more harm to firms, like low internal rates of return, increased bid premiums on acquisitions and mergers, and poor allocation of assets in an efficient way. Uh, do you see this in the field? And what are ways that you can encourage women to move in this career field? Great question. And it's one of my passions that I've been spending a lot of time, especially as a consultant. But more often than not, when you go to meetings with private equity investors, it's all men in the room. And you are very frequently the only woman. And that's a problem. It's a problem because you're not getting a diversity of viewpoint. With some of those companies I mentioned, a lot of the economic buyers, Gymshark, for example, half of their revenue is probably women. And to not actually have a woman representing that business, either sitting on the board as an investor or helping to drive the growth strategy, it's really concerning because we're consumers, right? But more often than not, they may attract women, and I think your stat was really interesting. It's about one-third intake yeah. is women. There's an issue around retention. And they find it really difficult once they get into private equity to stay in private equity. And so what I've done in my role is set up a women in private equity initiative. Most private equity funds participate either internally, they have they call them employee resource groups. They also um, are part of an association here in London called Level 20. But there's a significant challenge. You get this intake, and you have these amazing pool of talents of women, but they're finding the support internally incredibly difficult, because they are the only woman in the room. They don't have peers. And then when they move up on the chain, they don't have women to look up to. And can you imagine, you know, it's such a wonderful, diverse audience today, and I'm guessing a good portion of your professors are quite diverse, et cetera. But can you imagine being in a place where you are the only woman in the room constantly, and you've never seen anyone that looks like you at a senior level? And then you finally make it on the board, you made it in life, you're excited, and then you're a woman, and no one else is there. And so for them, they haven't figured it out necessarily, and it's a massive problem. And so I think it's really important that private equity funds invest in hiring more women at a junior level, but then the key is how do they retain them when they get to the middle? And there's a lot of challenges around that because maternity leave becomes one of those points where they don't come back. M&A, the hours are difficult. So before when I got here, I just got a call about a deal. So when I leave here, I'll be on a call with a guy in Singapore who's probably working until I don't even know what the time difference is. <laughs> but when you have children, that's really difficult. And one of the ways that you actually get to work on a gym shark is if you're in the run at the right time. And imagine if you have family obligations. And often women carry that burden a little bit more. And that's where they find it difficult. And then they fall out of that career path in that middle bit. And then it kind of keeps cycling through because then juniors come up and they're like, I haven't seen anyone like me. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to tackle the issue, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to retain that talent at that middle level, which then causes challenges at the lower level to attract. Gotcha. I'm sure maybe someone has a question about that. So my last question before opening it up to anyone who wants to ask you a question is, what kind of person is cut out to do PE work, uh, what kind of skills or just mindset should you have if you're thinking about going into this field? So I think curiosity. The people that I've come across that are really good at deals, you can be amazing at financial modeling, and that's a good portion of the role, especially at a junior level. But a lot of the conversations during COVID, especially if you take a fund like KKR, one of the most prestigious private equity houses, 
is being able to go into a room, look at a Ben, I keep referring to Ben and Jim Shark, slightly obsessed with Ben, but to be able to look at a founder and understand what is he thinking in terms of the growth of the business. Can you actually invest capital and partner with the Ben? And to look those management people in the eye and have a really good feel for the business and how they can take it forward. So it's not just being able to look at the numbers on paper, which I think if you look at a traditional finance career, everything adds up and it's a good investment. But it's understanding the management team, the people aspects, and then two, really being able to identify trends and being curious. So I spent a good portion of my time during COVID obsessed with Sweaty Betty. They were gonna sell Sweaty Betty and there was a great investment opportunity and I said, I'm American, it's finally going to come to the UK. Everyone's going to walk around on the weekend wearing gym clothes. It's going to happen. We're all going to be walking around in Europe wearing our, you know, Lululemon, etc. And it's going to never stop, and we're never going to put on real clothes after this. I'm so convinced. Well, actually, if we walk around, it's not the same as it is in the States. Places like Paris or in Italy, that's just not happening. And so having that curiosity and really understanding your markets is so important and it's been incredible to see how these young professionals are able to do the math but then also have a view on a specific sector and be able to partner with thought leaders or the Bens, the guys that come up with the ideas. So I think someone that's curious, that really wants to invest and build something and partner. It's a really great industry to do that. And you can pick and choose which sector, but you'll get to learn so much and really get to build something in partnership, which is really exciting versus just doing your typical finance role. Gotcha. Okay, so are there any questions? Anyone? In? Oh, please. <laughs> So uh, you did mention that the retention of middle management was difficult, middle level is difficult. So I want to know personally how you have overcome considering uh, the obstacles women face in this uh, sector. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that I think a lot of it's been really wonderful supportive mentorship. And I've been very lucky throughout my career to find other women that I can look up to. And this is again why it's important to have senior women to understand how I could do those roles and how I can advance my career. So mentorship's been incredibly important to me. I also think open, honest conversations are really important. We've been chatting a lot at work about some of the challenges that women face, and the men in the room might cringe in a minute, but outside of maternity and paternity leave, um, look, we can all do our part. One of the things that a colleague did recently is he took paternity leave, and everyone was obsessed that he took paternity leave. And why it was so important was a man said, I'm gonna use my full maternity leave, which made it okay for the women to use their leave. And just that simple act of him using his four months, I think it was, really was influential to the rest of us. So for me, it's been mentorships, but also sharing the more senior I get about my journey. So a lot of women, I've come to realize, um, put off fertility. So if they don't meet someone, but they really want a family, they put it off. But so many women secretly go through fertility treatments to harvest their eggs and to prepare should that happen in the future, but they don't talk about it. And so the more that we can have these conversations, which I've had a lot of conversations about fertility in the past week, but it's really important because you then feel the art of possible. And if your company knows that these are the challenges that you're facing, they might offer fertility treatments as part of their package to retain you, which would be amazing. So similar to um, companies that say, if you're working mom, we're gonna give you a nanny concierge service. Until people actually voice those things, you don't know. And so I think mentorship and actually having a voice and working really hard 
to be open and honest about the challenges so you can be supported by a team has been my secret sauce so far. Anyone else? Um, yeah, uh, so initially there was a talk about how government, uh, you were talking about government, so how does government affect the private equity and is it like different in different parts of the world and what should we know if like we want to like get into this field and want to know more about it? So government is very interested in private equity because it's, they're profitable and so they want to make sure they can tax the industry pretty significantly. So you'll see in places like Europe or more globally with the OECD that tax is becoming more and more aggressive with the industry. You probably have learned a little bit about places like Luxembourg and Ireland, tax havens, and private equity has used these tax incentives and these havens to actually be commercial, but governments are catching on. And so a fund, a KKR, for example, has to be really thoughtful about they're making all this profit. How are they dealing with it? How are they structuring their tax? So that's very important. You then have individuals. So let's say, again, we'll, we'll pick a different, we'll do one there, because it's more interesting <laughs> than but let's say you invest in Montclair in Italy and it's amazing, it's going well. You're probably sitting on the board, which is great. And as I said, we all in this room gave me money to invest, but I'm the investor. I was like the person that spotted the deal. I get a bigger cut of that profit, and they call it carry interest. Usually you pay very little to no tax on that. And that's why people do the job, because you're making some serious money, which is great. But you're also taking serious risk, because I could have bought puffer Jackie's jackets, and then would have been as successful of a brand. And governments like the UK have talked a lot about the problem of carried interest, and how they're going to go after individuals, and they're going to tax it. The US, it started with Mitt Romney's campaign a few years ago, because he came from private equity. It's a pretty significant political issue. And so you're going to see more aggressive tax treatment. The industry as a whole is lobbying it, but you're going to see them go after individuals and funds pretty significantly. So they're very involved. And then there's another aspect, it's the PR aspect of you buy a company, and I spent a lot of time looking at fast casual restaurants in the UK a few years ago. And we probably have all have heard of this famous chef called Jamie Oliver. Right? Jamie Oliver had a bunch of businesses called Jamie's Italian. Doesn't exist anymore, right? Private equity wanted to buy that. Now, they didn't buy it, and one of the big obstacles was Jamie Oliver's name. Couldn't negotiate a deal based on his brand, his personal brand. But if they did buy it, more often than not, what they probably would have done is close a lot of those restaurants down. They weren't profitable, they weren't doing well, but the second they do that, it becomes a press story. You fired people. Governments interject, especially on a local level. And then all of a sudden, you're the bad private equity investor. When the reality is, private equity not investing in closed down anyway. Again, Jamie's is a really good example of that. So the more that people are aware of the industry, both governments on a local and a more international level are going to catch on and either tax or make it a political issue. Gotcha. Uh, do you still have a question in the back? I am not, I was quite interested in your um, female sort of um, groups. So is that just for the company that you're working at now, or is that sort of a expanded over multiple companies? So what's been interesting about it is we're now doing something internal in that company to actually support the women that work in M&A, which is really important, and we're doing it with our sister companies. So there's four sister companies, Marsh, which does risk, Mercer does people, Oliver Women does strategy, and Guy Park does reinsurance. So how do we support the women internally? How do we offer flexibility when they come back from attorney leave, et cetera? But it was actually born out of this idea, shortly after COVID, I went to lunch with the Carlisle group, with an old colleague, and she said to me, Jackie, oh, I'm the only investment professional 
in my teens as a woman. I've always lucked out. It's a boys' club. They're not interested in chatting with me. I'm finding it really difficult. I have no one to look up to. We don't have any senior women on this particular team. You know a lot of people. Can you introduce me to some of my competitors? I don't want to look for a new job, but I really would like to chat with them about the challenges. And so what ended up happening out of that discussion was born this idea of bringing together women in private equity investment professionals from numerous funds on a quarterly basis for fun activity. Um, tomorrow we're going to do a champagne tasting, which will be fun. But a really small where they get to network with their peers. And more often than not, they'll talk about Carrie. They'll talk about Matt Leave. Oh, your company does that. My company does that. Like, and so it's been really enriching to be able to help support them on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. So I've spent a lot of time doing that at their request, which is kind of wild that their companies aren't doing this and they have to ask a consultant, but happy to help. Does that answer the question? I'm curious, um, does this group of where peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, does it translate and bring change in companies like for women's needs or yeah, minority needs? or Because actually you have a lot less women of color in private equity too, and mm -hmm. why is that? Um, do, does this group bring change, like policy change within these companies? So the diversity point is really interesting. So private equity, I love the industry, but I don't think if you can actually be open and honest about your flaws, it's not gonna get better. Um, historically, it's been very, very specific look in terms of the color of your skin and also the education. So if you didn't go to Oxbridge, as an American, that means nothing to me, but um, you probably wouldn't have gotten a role in private equity here in the UK. That's changing, but it's changing slowly, but it's important that you have these groups and people are actually demanding more. We see with ESG, people are demanding that I'm not going to take a job unless your ESG practices are you know, quite fair and transparent. And people are now requesting diversity in these roles, especially in leadership. And so these women get together, and what's been really impactful and powerful for me, some of its knowledge is power. You don't actually know if you're you know, the lovely lady at Carlisle, what the fertility policy is across the industry. Who's going to tell you that? But then if you actually get together with your peers and you find out, oh my gosh, all my peers get free egg freezing and they also get IVF and it's really supporting their, you know, career and they're not rushing to, you know, have children or they're not overwhelmed. It really helps them when they go back internally with their managers or to their HR professionals to say, look, I don't want to stay here. I love the work you guys give me, you pay me pretty well, but there's more to that, I want to bring my whole self. And here's something that you can do, here's a policy you can change to be in line with the rest of the industry or with one of your key competitors. But it's a slow move because more often than not, they still are underrepresented and it's really difficult sometimes to be heard, especially if you're the one, right? You're the only, I think your stat was only one woman out of 10 yeah. in the investment committee. And that's pretty typical. So imagine if you're saying, look, fertility, I know I'm going on and on about guys, but look, fertility is really, really important, but everyone else in the room is like, oh, gosh. Uh, you know, and so sometimes that can be a challenge, but if you can actually say, look, fertility is really important, and CBC is doing this, KKR is doing it, Premier is doing it, it's more meaningful than just being that lone person. to, you know, help this divide and try and, you know, like even the level playing field in whatever industries you find yourself. That's one part of the question. Then the second part is, 
I know mentorship is good, but how do women motivate other women to, you know, aspire, you know, to be leaders in whatever fields they actually find themselves? Really good questions. Um, I think there's a lot. Is at a leadership level is making other leaders aware of some of these problems and amplifying the voice of the juniors. You have a seat at the table. You've been respected enough. A lot of these PE funds are partnerships still. So you're an equal partner with your male partner. So I think you can actually impact change by demanding it at a senior level on some of your HR policies, etc. I think one of the things that I've noticed them actually doing is demanding at a recruitment level that there's more diversity. You have to early on actually have some really thoughtfulness about, hey, we're interviewing for this job. Why is it just Oxbridge that's represented? And to question and challenge. So I think a leader, it's very, very important to constantly be challenging the status quo. And I think that will slowly trickle down and should hopefully impact change. I think it's about building partnerships with the males on the team. We talk a lot about allyship. And the only reason I've been able to run this Women in Private Equity Initiative, both internally and externally, is my manager's male. And he has believed in me. And not only has he believed in me to do it, he's written checks to do it. And so I think as a female leader, you have a voice at the table, but you can actually help motivate other people to come along on the journey, which I think is really important. Did that answer the question? Yes. But, you know, um, I don't know, most times from my background, what I see is when women get to the, stop, to the top, they stay there, but they are unable to carry other women to the top. So mm -hmm. that's, I'm trying to, is there a way to breach that it, it's, it's a good point, um, because what's funny is sometimes we're our worst enemy. We were chatting a lot yesterday about maternity leave, and one of the women said that her, we call them moments that matter. We all have those situations when you go to your professor, or you go to your boss, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to tell them this news and I'm moving, or I have to tell them news that I'm you know, changing course. And you're freaking out of that because it's like the biggest moment in your week, you know, certainly or even further. And your boss is just it's another day for them. And she was talking about her moment that mattered when she went in to say she was pregnant. And her boss was amazing and it was a woman and how encouraging she was. And she saw her boss two nights before we did this panel yesterday. And her boss was saying, her moment that mattered when she went to her boss for maternity leave, it was actually leave the, leave the office. It's not going to work with you in the role. And I think it's such an impactful story because more often than not, sometimes those situations that we find ourselves into, we then just carry it on and we don't think we can actually do something different. And I think it's very important that we have those experiences, but we use those opportunities in a leadership role to try to change and make things better. And not to say, well, when I was pregnant, the role wasn't going to work. But to actually say, when I was pregnant and the role couldn't work, actually could have. And I'm going to be different than that manager. And so, Unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time because I think all of us sometimes think, well, I had to go through it, so he or she has to go through it too. And I think it's important that you actually say, I'm going to change the narrative. Yeah. Um, you said one um, aspect of someone going into private equity is having curiosity. So in your role, um, when you see an idea that could possibly work or investing in a, another company, like how does it look if you see an idea that could potentially work, what, does, what is the process, the next steps of pursuing that uh, potential deal? So I used to do more originating, and originating means you're coming up with these deal ideas. So 
this goes back to me being obsessed with Sorty Betty. I heard somewhere that Sorty Betty might be for sale, for sale, and I was like, I'm going to come up with a theory and why people should buy Sorty Betty. Um, I do less of that now. Private equity, if you're in a private equity role at a fund, you have to do that. Especially the more senior you get, that's what you're doing. So you're going to events, you're going and doing market research, you're trying to figure out the next trend, you're trying to understand Golden Goose. What is that? Let me go meet the founder of Golden Goose. Wait, there's a guy making some gym kit in a garage? Let me go meet him. When you go to KPMG, you're doing that lesser. But you're dealing with people that are coming across these market ideas, same with IVs. In my current role, I do it lighter touch. So if someone tells me, Jackie, Diptyque, it's an amazing idea, it's good candles, I love myself. Um, you know, it's something that I will then start to have conversations with who I think might buy Diptyque. Diptyque's a high-end candle brand. Hmm. It's very European, there's an international play. You could actually expand it to the US. They don't have that much. Diptyque in the US, that might be really interesting to do something with a department store there, maybe the Asia market. Wait, who does that? That's a premier opportunity. They look at high-end things like Golden Goose or Valentino Hugo Boss. So a lot of it's matching up and marrying. Another thing I do every day in my role is actually sitting and listening and figuring out how I can help someone with what I understand and I'm able to do. So the big topic is ESG. Everyone's talking about ESG. So it's understanding in my company what we can do with ESG to help support a fund and their goals, both um, for their funders that are contributing you know, funds to the, the bottom line, but also how do we take a portfolio company like a plastics business to really meet some lofty standards that maybe aren't being set by the government. And so taking it upon myself to be thoughtful about that. The government's not, Portugal is the company I'm thinking about, isn't setting um, emission standards around this plastics business. But the World Economic Forum is. So how can we actually get them to look really good? So people will know, picking up a plastic bottle, say we're going to actually use them as our supplier because they have really good standards versus their competitor. So a lot of it's just trying to figure out what trends are and try to marry either the right buyer to buy that business or the right service. Okay. It's kind of like a lot of roles are like sales. It's like business development. Lawyers are chasing new business. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of, it's like a sales kind of thing. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Yes, sorry. Drawing from her question, in terms of curiosity and you know, trying to find out something, where do you match the risk? Do you look at the risk or there's another department that handles risk management entirely when you're doing private equity? I'm not an expert in anything. <laughs> so what I've been able to do in my career is I'm a generalist. And you'll even find this in a private equity fund where you can diligence at a very general level. But then when you're going to actually buy a consumer business, you then really have to lean on people in-house in your fund. Or in the case of Marshall McLennan, I have to lean into the person that's really good at cyber or the ESG carbon emission issue and lean into that expertise in-house to make the investment decision or to be able to help the client. So I think it's really important that you build a community of team and that's why it's so important for private equity funds when they engage advisors to really vet them and understand I can hire a new lawyer but I want a lawyer that really understands this business and the challenges it may actually have because there's a tax structure in a really difficult country or maybe it's going to be sanctioned because of what's happening in Ukraine and so I can't use my normal lawyer that would help me with a very standard business in the UK. Okay. So, any other? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, private equity and investment banking uh, have been on the hotline for a decade now. And so, how do you see the future of private equity and what are the challenges that you come across is one part. And then, uh, 
The second one is uh, if you you are an investor and you look for investing into a business with respect to private equity, so uh, what are the uh, key points you take into consideration and what are the litigations that you look for? Okay. So as an industry, historically, again, it had this bad reputation, especially in the 1980s and 90s, and I think it's gotten a little bit better. I think where the challenge for private equity is, is the Carlisle's, the KKR, the major private equity houses that we all think of Blackstone. Since 2008, 2009, they all IPO'd. So they're listed generally in the New York Stock Exchange. We can all go buy their stock. That's great, but because they have shareholders, public shareholders, there's more demands on those businesses. They're not as agile. They can't do the interesting deals anymore because they have to report back to their shareholders. And so in 2008 and when they just were about to IPO or just IPO'd, they were able to pick up a lot of those distressed businesses that were failing because of the recession. And they were able to do an asset play, meaning they were like, wow, we want to buy Pizza Express because the pizza's not very good. But let me tell you, the real estate's amazing. They can't do that anymore because they're gonna let people go and the shareholders are going to be outraged and it's gonna create you know, significant reputational risk issues for them. But it's an exciting time if you're a mid-market, not publicly listed private equity company. So I have a theory, and it's a personal theory, don't test me on this, is that you're gonna see some really interesting players emerge because state aid, which we all benefited from Eat Out, Help Out, all these amazing state aid programs to support companies during COVID, they've all gone away. And so now you're going to start to see companies, I always say May.com was the shop that was fired, where you're going to see them start to collapse. A Blackstone and KKR Carlisle isn't going to invest because it looks bad to let people go. They're not able to do the interesting things they could. So you're going to find a mid-market, non-listed private equity fund like a Premiera, a Centerbridge, is going to evolve and do some of these more interesting murky deals. Deals have slowed. Because of COVID, valuations went up here in 2021. And so the opportunity is going to be on that stressed, interesting bolt-on level, and it's not going to be your major houses. So their profits are going to slow, and I think you're going to see these new players emerge. The second question was about challenges. Um, no, the, what are the key points you look in a business, and what, what are the litigations that you could look for? So the key points in a business is always profitability. Do you see there's an opportunity to grow the business? And a lot of this stuff is unicorns. I mean, again, Jim Shark, you guys are gonna be tired of it, but it was, I spoke to so many clients about Jim Shark because it was a unicorn. It was fast growing. There was such opportunity to take it to different markets. So you're constantly looking for those silver bullets, but then it's, how do I get in front? How do I impress Ben? And so many private equities, that kid, I think he was like 22 or something when he was, General Atlantic invested. And there were so many PEs that were trying to wine and dine him. And he wasn't taking meetings. So I think a lot of it is where you see the opportunity. And then a good portion of where you should spend your time is if you can't do the math that way and say, okay, we're going to follow the trends because everyone's going to start wearing this outfit. It's what can I do for the business? So there are things I can do to, they call it value creation. So could we cut the division? Could we um, expand into a different area that we haven't before and close a different area? What could we do as management? Has it just been poorly managed, but it's a great idea? And so you're gonna spend a lot of time on those more thoughtful things versus just catching the trend, which I think for the past few years. And so a lot of PE funds are actually, we call it their portfolio businesses, they're spending time in working through those value creation plans. What can we do to improve the profitability, how we can, um, you know, work through our supply chain? Is there taxings that we can do? Can we be a little smarter with our employees? We're a tech business. We need to attract and retain people. How do we, you know, 
pull people from different R&D sectors to help come up with the next good product? Or can we bolt on a business? Can we buy a small competitor that might have a technological edge that we don't? So they're spending a lot of time doing that, and I would say that's where you're gonna spend more time versus just one plus one equals three, because I see the probability. Okay, so we maybe time for just one more question. Anybody has? Yes, one last question. Can you talk about the structure of the company? I mean, for example, if you get into a case that you're not specializing in, in a different field, can you consult your coworkers, or do you have to study it from the beginning? Yeah, so I think what you'll typically find is that when they're originating a deal, they're looking at the financials. You can find a lot of this on a company's house or it's listed in, in numerous places. And you're spending a lot of time coming up with all these theories. Like I have all these amazing theories on Sweaty Betty, but <laughs> it's when you get further down the road that you can actually sit with management. You get to meet the senior development officer. Sorry, Betty, I think it was founded by a husband and wife. You get to meet them and really understand their ethos and what they're thinking about the brand. And I think that's where it actually becomes more real and you can make some smarter decisions versus what you're just seeing on paper. Because even when I was at KPMG, you would sit and do all this financial tax due diligence and you have some really thoughtful theories on where the business is going, where there's gaps. But then when you sit with management, you actually understand what have they done, what have they tried, where are they going with things. It actually brings it to more life and you can decide if you want to invest. Because more often than not, you're gonna take management with you for the ride. You can't fire them right away. And so you need to make sure that you actually understand what they've tried, where they're taking the business, and you can partner with them. And understanding the journey a little bit further before you invest. I think to be able to be a private equity investor, you have to model. You have to be really good at making the numbers add up because you will go through and you'll come up with a business case, but it has to add up. And you can say, look, there's some really great things here, but the numbers have to add up because you will go to a thing called the investment community, IC, and you will be challenged on that because you have to give that money back to your funders. But then there's, you know, one last little story I'll share is you can have the numbers add up amazingly and everything can make perfect sense. And you can say, we're gonna invest in this money because we're or this business. We're gonna grow it. The market's growing, the trend is going that way. And this actually happened with a business which was a car out in Unilever. Unilever sold their teas division. PG Tips, Tazo Tea, we probably all heard of that. Some of us may have seen the BBC documentary two or three weeks ago about teas. Private equity bought that. And they had about four private equity houses that said, we're gonna buy teas. Everyone's gonna drink tea, it's gonna be amazing. It's a growing market, especially in Asia, the high-end tea space, the numbers add up. The numbers added up for all those private equity houses. The auction was pretty hot. They were bidding each other out. They were excited. ESG is the reason they stopped. So three of the bidders out of four walked away from that deal because they discovered that the plantation practices in Africa and India were very unjust, especially how the treatment ironically today of women was just appalling, and they walked away from that deal. So even when the numbers add up, sometimes it doesn't make sense to do the deal. Last question, when you say numbers add up, for you, it makes a lot of sense, but can you a little bit elaborate what is it mean numbers is that means that uh, the investment is profitable? Yeah, exactly. So if you buy a company for 150 million, you want to be able to walk away with at least a 20% growth on that. So you're hoping that your investment is going to bring a significant return. And so you're punting and making a prediction. Because you buy it for 150, you're gonna throw some investment in it, hopefully. It's gonna grow, but then you can't predict things like a downturn, or you can't necessarily predict that COVID's gonna happen. Or that people might say, oh, Montclair vests are really great, but no more. We're now all going to run around in gym kit and not wear a nice vest. So you have to be able to really be confident because if you buy it for 150 million and you sell it for 100, 
you can't pay your investors back, it doesn't add up, and you'll probably get fired. So anything you buy, it's not like buying a car where it depreciates and that's okay. You actually want to make it better, sell it on, pretty significant, which then might your investors pay yourself out and do it again. So it means you see a potential of gold for this company. And in the private equity deals, specialists who are in charge of this gold, meaning they need to consult, to discover it. Exactly. You have to get a bit specialized in this field to consult with, no? So you rely heavily on your management teams, your generalists, but maybe you're really good at consumers. So Premiera, they're really, really good at um, Doc Martens. They invested in Hugo Boss Valentino. So they're like, well, we can help you, Doc Martens, because we did Kirk Iger. We understand we've seen this before. So you need to be specialized, but you build teams. Because sometimes you're not specialized, so you go to a McKinsey, a Bain, BCG, but you see the opportunity because you did the numbers, you looked at the financials, you understand the market, and you build team around it. And then two, you also have to, you'll take a board position more often than not because you take control of the business. Sometimes you do minority, et cetera. But in that case, you actually need to rely on your management teams. So it's great investing in Gymshark and writing a big check, but you need to actually have a CFO that can actually help implement these plans for expansion. You need to make sure Ben, who's your 50% partner, is okay with expanding into America because he could stop you from doing it. And so a lot of it is actually thinking through the business plan, working with advisors and your internal team to say, hey, you worked on Sweaty Betty, we were buying Gymshark, this is what you did wrong last time and then leveraging those people and partnering with the people in management to do it for you. And you're allowed to make yourself exchanges, like changing CFO? Yeah, usually because you retain control of the business, your board seat, you can fire people, but it's not necessarily always a good thing because of morale, et cetera. But if you think the CFO does not get your vision, and you just wrote $500 million check, off you go, right? You have to make sure that the people that you have in place to implement your plans are being supportive. Okay, so thank you, Jacqueline, for coming and chatting. I know you have to get on that phone call with that gentleman, but um, I think we all have benefited from what pirate equity is and what you do and how it makes a difference in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.